Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team. I love that last song. It is well with my soul, and it has quite a story behind it, a story of loss and one that's trusting in the Lord regardless. Mike Horton once said, if sin is not the problem, listen to this, if sin is not the problem, the cross is not the answer. So whatever you come in with, however you define the problem, that's going to determine what you're looking for as the answer. If you're just looking for meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and better pay or better friends or whatever that may be, well, you can find those things in other places. But if you're here today and you realize my ultimate problem is my own heart and my ultimate problem is sin, well, the only answer for that is the cross. And that's really the heart of that last song. It is well with my soul. Why is it well? Well, because my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's why it is well with my soul. What a great way to launch us into our sermon time this morning. That was sermon number one. Let's move along now. Sermon number two. All right, we are going through the book of Proverbs, if you're new with us or maybe haven't been out for a little bit. We are in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs functions a little bit differently than other books of the Bible. The first nine chapters, you really can outline a consistent theme, and the main point of the first nine chapters, it's really an introduction to chapters 10 through 31 in reality. It's telling you, you need wisdom. You need to get wisdom, get as much of it as you can, prize it above everything else, and then it goes on to explain how you go about getting wisdom. And that's really the heart of the rest of the book, 10 through 31. So what we've been doing is we took a few weeks and we looked at the case for wisdom in the beginning. And now what we're doing is we're building themes. So we're taking a particular thread and we're just sort of pulling that through the book and seeing what all verses line up with that. The themes that I've done here, we did pride and humility. There were quite a few on that. And then we looked at the issue of our tongue, our words, our speech. That was last week. And then today we're going to talk about friendship and relationships, friends and relationships. And I think you will find this one interesting. I will tell you, as I started putting this together, I quickly realized that this is not a one sermon, um, one sermon issue. Uh, We're going to take two weeks on this. So just the schedule over the next few weeks. So we're going to talk about friendship today. Next week is our outdoor service, and my friend, uh, he's preached for us before. Dave Kakish is going to be in town, and Dave's going to be preaching from Proverbs uh, next week, our outdoor service. So the following week, we'll be back looking at the issue of friendship. So that is what's going on over the next few weeks. So let's talk about this issue of friendship, relationships. We are relational beings. We all know that. We all have to have friends. Everyone needs friends. And... Our friendships matter greatly to us. Who we hang out with has a major, massive impact on us. And we can have an impact on other people as well. So as we're listening and as we're looking at these texts today, what we're doing is looking for the types of people that we want to befriend. And then we are also looking at ourselves and saying, I want to be that type of friend to other people. So there's really a double application going on. We are social creatures. That's inherently a good thing. Think about how the Bible started. Genesis 2, 18. After the creation story, God says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And that's when he created the woman, Adam and Eve, our first, very first parents. 
From that day forward, humans have lived in community. Now, I know some of you may raise your hand and say, well, aren't there some exceptions? Aren't there some people that just live off the grid, you know, out there in the middle of Alaska or the Yukon Territory or wherever that is? And there are, but we need to understand something. The reason those stories strike us is because they are so exceptional. They're kind of the exceptions that prove the rule, really. People are created for community, and even the people that are out there in the middle of nowhere, my guess is they're using technology that somebody else developed. Somebody else made some tools and things that they have out there, and my guess is they still have to have some connection with the other human beings. We are created to live in community. You just can't help it. We are relational beings. In the early days, of course, You didn't have a lot of people at the beginning. You only had two, and then they began to populate the earth, and it quickly expands. But you didn't have a lot of choices as to who your friends are, kind of like your brothers and sisters in your family. Like, that's who they are. We'll talk about that more the next time. But now we have choices. We actually can choose somewhat who we hang out with. And so Proverbs has a lot of warnings about the type of people that you let influence you and you let be close to you. And so we're going to be talking about that um, today for quite a bit. I've titled the message, Dull People Make Great Friends. And some of you may be immediately thinking, I think I want to be friends with you then. Dull people make great friends. I'll explain my title more in just a moment because I do think there's something going on in Proverbs 27 that I want you to see. First, I want to talk about just how important this issue is of friendships. The danger of bad friends or the liability of bad friends. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. I love Hebrew poetry. It's so descriptive and helpful. If you find yourself in a bad time, a treacherous treacherous time, you find yourself in trouble, what you need around you are some people who are reliable, people that aren't going to stab you in the back. You need somebody that you can trust. If you are away on a trip and something happens in your house and you've got a next door neighbor that's known to be a thief and notorious for being a bad person, but they happen to be the only person with access to your house at that moment, you're in a bad spot. You're in a bad spot. And he's Proverbs says it's like a bad tooth. Now, in the day of modern dentistry, this is still a pretty daunting thing. If you've got a toothache, it can become quickly consuming if you have something going on inside of your mouth. But days before modern dentistry, there, there was only so much you could do. You could die from a bad tooth, a tooth infection. It's actually very close to your brain and quite dangerous if you don't treat it. You can't do anything about it. So he's saying, look, the, the one... A treacherous friend in a time of need, that's like, it's like a bad tooth. It's like really dangerous. So you need good friends, the liability of bad friends, the people around you. Now, I want to talk about a proverb that is probably very common to you. It's the one about iron sharpening iron. And I'm going to give you an alternate translation and alternate interpretation of that, that You may or may not have heard before, but I assure you this is checked out by scholars and different ones, and although I might end up ruining some men's ministry names with this, I do want you to understand what I understand this 
translation, this, uh, this verse to actually mean. Proverbs 27, 17. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. All right, here goes. A little while back, I read an article by a guy named Ron Geese. He a, has a PhD, and he wrote this article studying this, and he offers the idea, what if this is actually not a good thing to sharpen one another? What if we've actually like flipped this completely? And I think he actually makes a pretty airtight case for this, and I'll be happy to forward you any of you the article if you are interested in that. He lays out a case for why this is a negative proverb rather than a positive proverb. Let me just give you a little bit of context here. One is the word itself, to sharpen. In our vocabulary, we think of sharp as a good thing, right? If you said, hey, I met this new guy at work today, he's really sharp. You, you take that as a good thing, right? That's typically how we understand that term and word. It means he's on top of it. They're a sharp person. But actually, in the usage in the Old Testament, to have a sharp tongue or sharp features is negative. You sharpen things to poke people with it. That's not nice. And so to sharpen one another then is actually not what you're trying to do. You actually want to dull people by your reactions. Let's look at it in context. I think there's, as I've said, there's, there are some things you can connect in the context of Proverbs. Let's look at it. Proverbs 27, 13. We want to dull our neighbor's face. That makes a much better, I think we should name that our men's ministry. Instead of irony sharpening iron, we could be dulling your neighbor's face. May not go over quite as well. Proverbs 27, 13. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. The basic point of this is don't help somebody do bad things. Don't put up security so that they can go do a bad thing. Let's keep moving. Look at the rest of the context. This next one might be my life verse. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as a curse. All right? I want to talk more about this particular verse next week or next time as we look at friendship, because I think there's a lot to be said on this particular one. Some of you are morning people. Some of you are not morning people. Those of you who are not morning people, you have immediate resonance with this verse. Blessing your neighbor loudly. And, good morning. It's so good to see you. I'm like, no, it ain't. <laughs> not for a while. My dad used to say that I wasn't saved until I'd been up at least two hours. And I think that's probably still true. Life happens early in the morning for me most days, so I have to get up like an extra level early in order to be like coherent and around humans. So this, is, this serves though, let's remember what's happening in the context, this serves to sharpen your neighbor as you are blessing them loudly in the morning. You're sharpening them. You are, you're putting a point on them and they're gonna poke you. That's the point. I think that's going on. The next one in the context, 2715. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. So the continual complainer, they complain and they complain and they complain 
and they complain. Finally, they put a point on you so sharp that you poke them with it. This is, I think, what's going on in the context. So what we want to do in the context here is not to sharpen one another. We actually want to dull one another. We want to tamp down those sinful reactions. I think it's the, the interesting thing here is it's actually the application is pretty similar in that the people you hang around will influence your reactions and how they shape you. So the effect could be very similar, but I think the proverb is actually pointing us towards let's don't do this rather than let's do this. I think it's a negative rather than a positive. So what about for us? I think we say something very similar. We, we say it all the time, actually. That person, they put me on edge. You ever heard that, use that expression? They put me on edge. They're, that's the type of idea I think this proverb is getting at. They're getting us ready for battle. That's what they're doing. And I don't need to be battling. That's the problem. This is so important because I think we live in a world full of sharpeners. You ever notice that? You turn on the news, they're just trying to sharpen you, get you riled up, sharpen your spear so that you can go poke folks with it. Social media is designed to sharpen you. It's constant, it's constant, constant feedback. Get us ready to fight. Christian friendship is supposed to do exactly the opposite. A few verses, you can jot these down, look them up later. Romans 12, 18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's such an interesting and helpful verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's Romans twelve eighteen. The implication of that is some people won't let you be at peace. That's why, if possible, be at peace. Some people just don't like peace. They're sharpening you. But as far as it depends on you, don't be the troublemaker. Matthew 5 and verse 9, one of the great Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Be a peacemaker. Be a face duller, not a face sharpener. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more important than yourselves. You see, the tone of the Christian is supposed to be exactly the opposite of this. We're looking for ways to put the fire out. A soft answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer turns it away. All right, let's move on. Now that I've ruined some men's ministry logos for some of you, let's move along and talk about how to make these types of friends So there's going to be two parts of this, and again, this is part one, and then in two weeks, we will look at part two. So the first part is friends to avoid, and then the second part, logically, would be the friends that we want to be or what to look for in a friend. So what I've done is just gone through Proverbs and just trying to pull out everything that relates to this topic and then sort of collate those into a theme and see what the scriptures has to say. There are plenty more Proverbs than the ones I have here that speak to this issue, but a lot of times there's duplication and they're very similar, so I've pulled all these together in that way. All right, so what to avoid in a friend. The first thing we want to avoid is violent people. Violent people. I won't go to 
chapter 1, verses 10 through 19, because we actually looked at this on our, early on in our study of Proverbs. And we looked at these people who are just out to harm people. They're out to do violence. Now, remember, this is written specifically to a younger group. And so you have the simple one, the naive one, as he's called, and he's going to choose a path, one of two different ways. He's going to choose the path of wisdom or he's going to choose the path of folly. So Proverbs is put out in front of the young one to say, don't go down the path of folly, go down the path of wisdom. There's just two competing voices calling out to you. And one of those voices is calling out and wanting to do violence, wanting to do bad things. Many of us don't live in a world where you see violence and you see bad, bad people every day, but they're out there and there's a thin line really and there's a really, really thin bubble that protects you from people that are actually wanting to do physical harm. It happens every day. It happens in our city every day. So there are violent people out there. We'll talk about some other application of that because it comes from a heart that is set on anger and doing violence. Let's look at chapter 3 and verse 29. Chapter 3, we'll pull this thread of friends to avoid. Chapter 3 and verse 29 says, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. You need to stay away from people who are like this. Don't be like them. The violence comes again from the heart. So they have their hearts set on doing violence, and that's why they do violent things. You know, societies are based on mutual trust. We understand that. I understand we don't trust everyone explicitly, but there is a level of trust that you have to have in order for society to function. In fact, I use this argument in other contexts, but you live by faith all the time, don't you? When you go order something from Chick-fil-A, you, you are living by faith that somebody has not poisoned your food, that, you know, the 14-year-old that's working in there is giving you the right thing, like no pickles on your sandwich. I have pickle and onion issues, sorry. You're living by faith that this thing has, that this person's not out to get me. We live by faith all the time. Societies are based on mutual trust. But what if your neighbor that lives beside you, what if they're plotting the whole time and they're smiling on the outside but inside, they, they are out to get you. There are people like that in the world who just want to see you go down, who just want to do violence against you, and they're just looking for an opportunity. There are people like that, as sad as that is. Many of you probably have read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Might have been a minute for many of you. Classic book by Robert Louis Stevenson. The premise is pretty simple yet profound, Jekyll is, Dr. Jekyll is this respected societal man. He's a great guy. He's involved in his community. He's civically helping others out. He's sort of the quintessential perfect British gentleman, Dr. Jekyll. But inside, he has these really terrible desires. He wants to harm people. 
He wants to do evil. But in order to do that, he doesn't want to ruin his reputation as being this upfront, nice, good guy. And so what Jekyll does is he creates this potion. And when he takes this potion, he's able to transform his body into Mr. Hyde, a person that's not recognizable as Dr. Jekyll. Well, the story goes on and he's able to transform himself and he goes out and he does terrible things. He does awful things as Mr. Hyde. He goes back to Dr. Jekyll and he's able to keep his reputation intact. In the end, Mr. Hyde eventually takes over and Dr. Jekyll is not able to maintain this division and it eventually takes his life at the end of the story. It's an example of one who was plotting evil all the while, looking respectable and nice. Don't be that kind of person and don't hang out with people like that. The problem, of course, is some of them are really good at it and you don't know they're plotting evil until they have gotcha. Watch out. Watch out for violent people. Watch out also for wicked people. Watch out for wicked people. There's a lot of overlap between these two categories. But what I want to point out with this one is that this wickedness is really something that is consuming. They have been habituated by doing wrong. Look at chapter 4 and verse 16. 416. So there's a warning. Don't go down this path in verse 14. Don't even, don't even look. Avoid it, verse 15. And then notice this. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This has become not only a thing they did, it has become who they are. They have been conditioned by doing evil. Lewis said that good and evil multiply at compounding interest. And so you do a bad thing, it's easier to do a bad thing the next time. You do a good thing, it feels good to do a good thing, and you do a good thing the next time. Compounding interest. These little decisions, these little hinges in life. You turn it this way, you turn it that way. And you might think, no big difference. But trajectory, as David talked about, few weeks ago. Trajectory, if you, this little adjustment here, this little adjustment there, it makes a massive difference in where you end up and the type of person that you end up being. You've all probably felt this at some point. Does anybody remember, I won't ask you to raise your hand, although this would be fun to tell stories this morning. Does anybody remember the first lie you ever told? Does anybody remember it? Did that log in your brain? Does anybody remember that? <laughs> I do see some hands. I appreciate that. <clears throat> the first time you do that, the first time you actually just, I, eyes open, I know what I'm doing, I'm not telling somebody the truth, and I know it. It, it, will, it will get your conscience, won't it? It will get your conscience. You know, I just, I just said something that's not true, I know what I did, and it hurts. The thing is, you can respond one of two ways to that. You can respond by saying, huh, well, I got away with it. I'm going to do it again. And it st you, you start to go down that track, and it gets easier and easier and easier and easier, like a callus on your foot when you get a new pair of shoes. The first time you wear them, they hurt. Second time, third time, fourth time. By the time you wear them for a week, you don't even notice anymore. But it works the other way, too. If you respond well to that, 
and you listen to your conscience, your conscience becomes tuned in to God's law and you become sensitive to that. So that's what Lewis meant. It compounds the interest, these little decisions that you make. These people are so far gone, they can't even sleep. It's just become who they are and what they do. They're meaning evil. They're doing wicked, terrible things. Stay away from those people. What does that mean for us? I was talking to a ministry leader just a few weeks ago here in town, and he was telling us a story. It was a group of pastors we were meeting. He was telling us a story about this kid that he's working with at the school, and there's a group of people that want to kill him, and they've been very open about that, and they send him text messages, and they roll their window down and drive by and tell him, when, when we get you alone, you're going down. We're going to get you today. And this kid lives in incredible fear, and the police have been involved, and it's just an incredibly difficult situation. And I think most of us, I was talking a minute ago about most of us don't live with that sitting over us, something like that. I think many times in the Psalms, that's what David is actually dealing with. Like, no, 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 we want to kill you. We're not using that word in a metaphorical you know, euphemistic sort of way, or we just want to bring you harm. No, 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 they wanted to kill him. There are violent people out there that do violent, terrible, harmful things. We do not want to minimize that. Many of us don't live in that world. But think about the heart that drives that. Many of us do live in a world where people say terrible things, though, where they intend terrible things, and maybe if given the opportunity, they would do terrible things. Stay far away. Don't be around people. Don't make, it, make them your friends, people who are hurtful and saying hateful things all the time. Get away. Avoid wicked people. All right, friends to avoid. Violent people, wicked people. Next, avoid superficial people. Avoid surfacey people. We're going to talk more about these particular proverbs when we get uh, later on. We're going to talk about wealth and riches and stewardship. And so these will come up again, but I did want to mention them today because it relates to friendships and it particularly relates to fake friends. Let's read these. I'll read all, I'll read all of them for us, or at least uh, 14 and 19, 4 and 6. 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor. But the rich has many friends. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The rich has many friends. But are they really friends? 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. 19.6. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to the man who gives gifts. Some things never change, Right? 3,000-year-old book. We still see this going on today. When we lived in California, we were around at different times some absolutely, incredibly wealthy people. And watching the wrestling match of people trying to get close to them was pretty sad in reality. It's hard to be wealthy because you don't really know who your true friends are. And some extremely wealthy people have even said that. We see this sometimes. You'll see it around like the draft uh, when like an NBA player gets drafted and uh, somebody says, hey, buddy, don't you remember we were in 
third grade together. I loaned you a pencil. You remember me, right, friend? And all of a sudden, when they sign a multi-million dollar contract, you want to be friends anymore. But as soon as the riches are gone, so are the supposed friends. They're superficial. Stay away from them. I think this is one of the reasons so many people find the Hallmark movies so appealing. It's, we're coming up on holiday season. If you're, a, if you're a Hallmark movie watcher, blessings on you and yours. I think this is one of the reasons, though, because, you know, the basic plot is there's a small town guy and then this uptown girl and they end up falling in love, but he's very poor and she's not. And like, well, I really love him, but he doesn't, he's not kind of like up to my standard. Well, in the end, she finds out, oh, he's actually very wealthy and like, yay, we live happily ever after. But she has to go through this process of testing with his flannel shirts and all, through this process of testing to see, does, does she really love him for him or is it just his money? And in the end, of course, she loves him for his money and she gets the money, she loves him for him and she gets the money too. Wow, I just saved you 90 minutes this holiday season. We, we know there's, there's something to that storyline, and I think many people actually love those types of movies because we live in such an unpredictable world. I think people are actually looking for predictability in a story. Like, I just know this one's going to end happy. Like, if I watch this, these other stories, it's just, it's just too much. I just need something that's going to, like, close the loop and leave me smiling and crying and eating chocolate. Like, this is great. And hey, I'm for you. I'm for you. I think there's something to it, though. I think there's something to that of, do they really love them for them? And I think Proverbs is dialing us in on that. Are they really your friends? If they're just after the money, they're not. Superficial people, avoid them. Stay away from them. Next, friends to avoid. Angry people. You don't want to be around angry people. These next two really have to do with attitudes, how we, the attitude that we walk around with. Don't hang out with angry people. They are a problem waiting to happen and they will drag you into it as well. Look at 22, 24, and 25. There are quite a few Proverbs that deal with the angry person. I just have this one listed for you as it relates to friendship. It says this, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. So don't, don't even let him be your friend. Why? Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Don't learn his ways and don't entangle yourself. Being around negative and angry people has an impact on you. You will learn their ways and you will find yourself entangled in a snare. It's interesting. Over the last few years, we've seen all sorts of uh, like social protests and mobs and um, di- a kind of a proliferation of these protests. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm just making a statement about human nature. Have you noticed that when you get a big group of angry people together, how they end up doing stupid things? It's just what happens. There's a book a few years ago called The Madness of Crowds. You get a bunch of people together and they're all angry. They will end up in a snare. And if you're in the group, you're going to end up in a snare. You may have never thought that you would do that thing, but all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of it. 
And it's not like it's against your will. What happens is as you're around these people, they influence the way that you think. Some of you may have read 1984, George Orwell's dystopian work. They had a daily practice in Oceana. It was even a liturgy of sorts. It was called the two minutes hate. And so on a video screen, they would have two minutes, and what they would do is they would have some political enemies or dissident, some invading uh, commander, um, an enemy, and you had two minutes to yell and scream all the hateful, terrible, horrible things that you could think of. So it was kind of this outlet, and it's uh, dystopian. This isn't true, obviously, but he's proving a point with that. Winston Smith, the protagonist of the story, describes it this way. Listen to this. The horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act a part. It's not that I, was, I had to do it. But on the contrary, it was impossible to avoid joining in it. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. So what happens is you join yourself in this crowd. Everybody's angry. You're angry. Why are we angry? We don't really know, but we're just all angry. And you lash out and you become this person. That's what happens when you hang around angry people. They influence you. You get caught in their snare. Whatever happens to them happens to you. Watch out for angry people. Stay far away. Lastly, intemperate people. Intemperate. I know that isn't a common term or word. It just means people that are given to excess. 23, verses 21 and 21. says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. And slumber will clothe them within rags. Be not among drunkards and gluttonous people. How many times have we seen somebody, a teenager, and they get a, they're a good kid, good kid, they get around a bad group of people and what ends up happening? It's the story. It's a story as old as time. You get around the wrong people and all of a sudden you find yourself in all sorts of trouble. There's two issues here that he points to. One is the drunkard, the one who's constantly drinking too much. And then the other is the gluttonous eater of meat. Now, this isn't necessarily referring to your Super Bowl party where you, you know, knocked out a tray of wings. It's talking about somebody who's regularly given to excess, somebody without self-control. It's, we, we really can't partition our lives off. We're all aware of this, right? If you are out of control and completely undisciplined in one area of your life, you probably are in other areas as well. It's just the way we work. We're humans. So he's saying you can see a little bit into the heart of a person if they're completely out of control with their urges and impulses to overeat and to drink too much, to be a drunkard, that's, they're probably going to end up with problems. He says the outcome of this typically is they're going to come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. So they're going to lose it all if they have no self-control. Being a person of excess leads to problems. This is what happens. Don't be around these types of people. Now, we've talked about friends to avoid. What I want to do with this last bit here is talk about what do we do then if you find yourself and you're like, well, that kind of... 
describes my friends list. Like, what do I do with those people? Maybe I should just send them a text after the service and say, hey, man, it's been fun, but my pastor just preached a sermon on friendship and, well, you don't really make the mark anymore. So it's been great, but we can't be buddies anymore. Um, You know, maybe I'll see you around. Uh, Probably not the best way to handle that uh, particular situation. So what do we do? What if you're forced to be around these people? Because even as some of you are thinking about this, you, you may be thinking about, I, this is kind of like my workplace. This is, and you can't really send a message to the boss and say, you know, Proverbs says, don't be around an angry man. I see some signs of anger in you. So yeah, you know, I'm going to need you to step down or reassign me or whatever it is. Not going to work. All right. Not going to work. So what do you, what do you do? Um, and how do we think through this? Because I don't think that's the proper application of Proverbs. Remember, Proverbs is shaping us to make wise decisions. It's not as simple as a do this, do that. It's a matter of shaping you into a wise person who makes decisions that honors the Lord based on his word and principles. So let's talk about this for a little bit. What to do with bad friends. The first thing I would say is let's make sure that we're carefully distinguishing something here. Distinguish between patterns and one-off behavior. Um, Is this person, are they showing a pattern of angry, malicious behavior? That's one thing. Or do they just lash out once or twice? And is this a pattern? Is this who they are? Or is it just something that they lost their cool a time or two? We need to distinguish that. What is it? What is it that we're actually dealing with? And by the way, as I mentioned a little while ago, apply these for yourself too, all right? You might get that text from somebody here on the way home. I don't know. Like, hey, sorry. So you remember he was talking about this? Like, yeah, not going to work out. So uh, apply these for yourself. Like, filter your own heart through this. The wise receive correction and instruction. Let's filter our own lives through this. All right, so distinguish between patterns and one-off behavior. Next, don't underestimate the influence of friends. Don't underestimate the influence of friends. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. I think this is so important for us to understand and really grapple with. If you are hanging out constantly with people that are have the polar opposite worldview from you, they will influence you. 100%, they will influence you. You may say, well, I'm hanging around, you know, for evangelistic reasons and share the gospel with them. I get it. I get it. We need to have those relationships in our lives, and that's going to actually be our next point. I get it, but you also need to take a really, really, really careful inventory of your own heart and life, and who are you allowing to influence you? And so I think that's part of the answer, too, as far as how do we deal with people that we're sort of forced to be around, that wouldn't necessarily be who we would invite over for Christmas dinner, left to ourselves, but you have to rub shoulders with them every single day. I think that's where this last part comes into play. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. You may want to find that one. I'll read it for you. I don't have it on the screen for you. Paul is here and he's, he's writing and he's clarifying some instruction he gave. And this is a section where he's talking particularly about church discipline 
and he's talking about an immoral person that he has encouraged to put out of the church. They are not supposed to be there because they are walking in immorality. Don't tolerate them. And so Paul's clarifying here, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. All right, so he said, I'm not telling you to completely leave those people because then you would just have to go find your own planet. You'd have to make a commune of Christians somewhere. But then guess what? You just took the problem with you because the problem's really our hearts. You just took the sin with you. You exported it saying, I'm not saying disassociate completely with the world. What I'm saying is that within the body of the church, within your close circle, you need to be careful. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. All right, so if he's identifying himself as a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So you distance yourself from the one who's claiming Christ, but their life is not consistent with that. That's who you distance yourself with. So you're not distancing yourself from those of the world. But I think you need to take a long, hard look at what that relationship is. Are they influencing you? Is this my close circle? What's the purpose of this relationship? Is it evangelistic where I can tell others about Christ? Is that what this is? Or are they just my friend that's influencing me negatively? We need to take a careful, careful look um, at this. Related to this issue, we wanted to take just a couple of minutes today. And we get asked from time to time about like what we do. I know we've got some newer folks here at the church, what we do and who we are. You should have received these, one of these in your bulletin as you came in. This is just a very simple flowchart, kind of explaining what we do and why we do it here at Sunrise. We organize this around three principles, reach up, reach in, reach out. And this isn't original to us. It's been used by many others in the past. And here's what we mean by that. Reach up, we mean that we come together to worship the Lord. This is what we do. This is who we are. Our corporate worship service is important to us. So we're reaching up in worship. The second part, the reaching in, we are growing together and then growing deeper. The growing deeper side, we offer something like our equipping hour at nine o'clock where people can go deeper into the word. We offer our men's and women's studies. And there's overlap, obviously, with what we're accomplishing and doing. But we really are trying to shoot a rifle shot rather than a shotgun at these goals. So growing deeper, growing together, this is where our home groups fit in. What we do is we offer a series of homes groups, I believe there's six now, around the different area, and we get together. I typically write questions that are related to the sermon. We get together, we talk about these things. We want to be that group of people that are practicing these types of things, that we are dulling one another's faces each and every Sunday night as we get together and encouraging one another to walk. That just doesn't have the same ring as iron sharpening iron, does it? We are getting together and we're trying to practice these things to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And then we also have the reach out section where we have organized efforts such as our Christmas concerts and various outreaches that we do. And then we have missionaries that we support to take the gospel to other places and specifically in training church leaders. And then also we think 
the main goal, the main emphasis is for you to be a disciple maker, a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. Lifestyle evangelism. We're out in the world, we're mixing it up with non-believers, and we're telling them about the gospel. That's really what we're after. The home group piece of it, if you are interested in learning a little bit more about that, we highlight these from time to time. At the back, uh, David is going to be in the back along with Leslie, and we have a list of those groups. If you are interested in finding out a little bit of information, um, you can do that there. always encourage people, just visit around and see who's got the best food, and then you can settle on a group based on that. It's terrible criteria. Don't do that. That was kidding. So uh, visit around, check one out. I think, it's a, I think it's a very important piece of the puzzle here, though. We think all three of these are actually pretty significant. You need to be doing these things, worshiping the Lord. You need to be going deeper. You need to be growing together with a group of believers somewhere, somehow. And then we need to be exporting it, sharing our faith with others. It's pretty simple what we're trying to do and accomplish. This is just the way that we are trying to get it done. All right, well, let me pray for us, and we will sing our closing song. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to be together today, and we're thankful that you give us friends. Uh, As I look back over my life, it's one of the great graces of my life is that you've given me great friends, and I'm so profoundly thankful for that. Pray for others, maybe in the room this morning, and they're just looking for a group, uh, looking for a place to really belong and invest in. Um, I pray that you would use this church, use the outreach ministries here, use our home groups, use the resources here to help them get plugged in and invested in another group of believers. No person is an island. And Lord, I pray also that we would be very aware of the influences on us, the people that we're around, how they are influencing the way that we think. For those in here, maybe they're by by way of their job or uh, life situation, they're just forced to be around people that are like these people we're encouraged to avoid, I pray that you would give them particular stamina and that you would give them discernment, that they would be able to speak wisely into those situations. And then I pray that you would bring around them godly friends who can point them to Christ as really a counterbalance uh, to those relationships that they have in whatever work context that may be. Lord, for others, maybe they're here this morning and just not real sure what all this means. Uh, Maybe the gospel what Christ did, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Use your word, we pray. Prick their hearts, show them their need for Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.